0: Book Club. For this episode, we read Fearing the Black Body by Sabrina Strings. Before we jump into that interview, though, just wanted to say that if you enjoy this episode and there are some things that you kind of want to explore a little more, there is a resource for you. On my website, Iwishiwereme.com, you will find a button to get a copy of the Your Better Body Image Checklist. This is kind of a beginner's checklist so that you can start to improve your body image right now. These are some things that you can start to do within the next few days that will begin to change the person that you're seeing in the mirror. So go ahead and grab that if you don't have it. If you do, then go back to the website, IWishIWereMe.com and book your 30 minute call with me. The really great thing about doing that as kind of a next step is that you get a little more tailored to you suggestions on things you can do for your body image. This is a completely free Zoom call that we'll do for about 30 minutes. If it doesn't work out for us to continue coaching together, that's okay. I love talking to people as I hope you have seen when I do this podcast I love asking people questions. I love being able to figure out how to help them on their journey. So just go back to the website, IWishIWereMe.com. You'll see a button and book a 30-minute session with me and we'll get you a couple more tips, a couple more practical things you can do to improve your body image. And we can go from there. Okay, so the next thing I want to do is the One Fat Girl's Journey segment. This is a segment I do at the beginning of each podcast to talk a little bit about what it's like to be on this journey and look at things through a body liberation lens. For this segment, what I want to talk about is something that just kind of keeps coming up. So I figure it's something that needs to be brought up. There are people in my life who understand what I'm doing. They know that I am anti-diet They know that I will not talk about weight. They know that I will not compliment them on weight loss. Uh, And they know that they are not supposed to mention my weight or my body. But things like health do often come up. And one thing that has been brought up lately is a couple people have talked about some of their favorite quote unquote junk foods that they cannot seem to stop eating. Now, in normal situations, I just kind of smile and nod because it's really hard for me to talk about this because I've been practicing intuitive eating for quite a while and I've learned some amazing things while intuitive eating, including that I can have junk food in my house and not eat it, that I don't have to have dessert every night the way I thought I did. I do most nights, but I don't have to. I have learned that food doesn't have the power over me that it used to. But I understand the struggle of people who find themselves knee deep in a bag of chips or eating a chocolate bar every night and feeling so insanely guilty about doing it. So I didn't say anything when these people talk to me about their struggle. But here's what I've kind of come up with with some thought about my own journey. First of all, I think we need to stop looking at food as good or bad. It's not good for you to eat all your veggies every night and it's not bad for you to have a chocolate bar every night. When we can let go of that and not just let go of it on an intellectual basis because I think most people when you talk to them about this will go, yeah, no, of course, of of course. Food is just food. We don't have to attach that meaning to it, but we do. So it's important to confront that to start with. Are you looking at the food that you're eating every evening or every morning or, you know, that three o'clock wall as bad? Is it making you feel guilt? What happens when we do this is that we extend this thought process out. We're a good person if we eat our vegetables. We're a bad person if we eat that cake. And that, that is that we need to let go of that because that's not true. Okay. So the second thing I think we need to talk about here is health. Lots of people will say, yeah, but it's not healthy for me to eat a whole bag of chips at the end of the evening. Here's the thing about health. And this is something that we don't get told a lot, or at least does not get emphasized a lot. We have a lot less control over our health than we think we do. Too often, we get told that what we eat and how much we move our body is a major player in whether or not we are going to be healthy. It is a player. But there are things that are bigger than those two things that we have absolutely no control over. Genetics being a big one. This is why, too often, we see thin people getting these "quote unquote" diseases of fat people. So you see people who are in thinner bodies. Um, I'm thinking specifically right now of that Biggest Loser um, trainer who got a who had a heart attack. Here is somebody who's supposed to be the epitome of health and he got a heart attack and no one would say that that was his fault and yet if we see a fat person who has a heart attack we think automatically that it's their weight it's just not true genetics play such a big part of what happens to your body and what diseases could be inflicted upon you. So what I'm saying is that if you are eating something at the end of the evening, every night, or at that three o'clock wall, that you see as not a healthy behavior, then maybe you want to address the behavior, but do not absorb this idea that this is bad for your health. Because at the end of the day, That's not exactly true. I guess in your head, what you need to think is, if you knew that this did not impact your health, would you feel as terrible about eating it? And then go from there. The next thing I want to say is that we need to start having compassion for ourselves. We need to start get just cutting yourself a break. I mean, (laughs) our lives are busy and there are so many reasons why you might be reaching to food for comfort and reaching to food for comfort is not a bad thing. We need many different tools in our toolbox in order to give ourselves self-care and food is one of them. Do not, do not negate the power of having something that makes you feel good cut yourself a break now I know you know there there's always practical tips on this like I said before with health um, you know if this is a behavior that you are looking at kind of trying to reduce there are always things you can do but let's not be obsessive about any of this I mean if you are reaching to something at the end of the evening And you're eating to the point of beyond fullness. And this is, this is what's important. Take some time to understand your hunger fullness cues when you're eating something that you feel is a bad behavior for you because you're eating it often. Take some time to find some awareness. Are you hungry when you eat it? Are you full or maybe uncomfortably full when you leave it? This is good information to know. It doesn't mean you have to change a fucking thing. It's just good information to know. The other thing is that maybe you want to experiment with some other behaviors. For instance, maybe you're reaching for whatever it is that you're looking to get comfort from at the end of the evening because you're not eating a lot during the day. Maybe you want to play with that a little bit. I am 100% not advocating for you to make any change. As far as I'm concerned, there is no problem. No problem, except for the feelings of guilt that you have for eating that when you do. That's what needs to be addressed. Okay, so that that is what I wish I had said. obviously I said none of that. So, um, Hey, if you guys are listening, uh, here's what I want to (laughs) say. All right, let's jump into it because this interview is intense. This book is intense. Okay. If you've read Fearing the Black Body, oh my gosh, I'm so excited to learn what you thought of it because holy crap, that was a good book. I mean, (laughs) I got so much out of that book, and I think that this interview with Natasha really kind of highlights some of the the big level things I got from it. But it is definitely on my I'm encouraging you to read list of books. All right, let me tell you a little bit about my guest, Natasha. Natasha Nygindi is a Canadian non diet nutritionalist, body image activist, Zumba instructor, and entrepreneur. She spent years being a slave to diet culture, but she was never able to keep the weight off. After hitting rock bottom, she finally gained food freedom and learned to truly love herself. Her lived experiences and nutrition knowledge inspire her to help others gain food freedom and accept their bodies too. Please enjoy this conversation with Natasha. Hi, Natasha. Welcome
1: to Fat Girl Book Club. Hey, Jen. Thank you so much for having me.
0: I want to jump into this book because it is so dense and there's so much to talk about, but let's start with a little bit about your journey. Can you talk a little bit about your, um, and normally I ask my guests before I start recording, but I forgot to do that on this particular instance. So (laughs) I normally ask them to put a label on their journey, body positive, body acceptance, fat acceptance. So if you could tell us a little bit about your journey and maybe what you call your journey, if that would be Okay.
1: Okay. So I call my journey, the journey of body acceptance and food freedom. Mm -hmm. And my story starts way back in South Africa. And so I was raised there. And when I lived there, there were people, there were people of all bodies and shapes that looked like mine. So I never felt uncomfortable or out of place about my body. But then I moved to Canada. And on this side of the world, everyone looks totally different from me and i just kind of realized like oh my god i don't fit in this beauty standard and i was pretty young when i felt that way and so it's bad because i really grew up wanting to change my body so badly and so at the end of high school i fell for someone who told me that if i lost 50 pounds and I would be more attractive. No, And so yes, it was so mean. But then silly me did not take that as a red flag that maybe he wasn't the one. (laughs) Silly me took that as a challenge and something that I should definitely accomplish so that I could be more attractive. And so for the next three months, I starved myself and I overexercised like I wouldn't eat over 1200 calories a day and I would exercise six times a week, sometimes twice. It was just awful. But the bad part about it is that as I lost weight, I did get that respect that I wanted so badly. I got all those compliments and I did feel more attractive, but that's because the people around me were giving me that affirmation that this is good. This is the right thing to do. And so I applied for nutrition because I really wanted to help other people lose weight. And I thought I was on the right track and (laughs) it was just awful. My motivations were going in, but then at that time, I stopped being able to diet and work out that much because it just wasn't sustainable. And I regained all the weight, plus even more. And it was really traumatizing to go through that because I was in a nutrition program. We are supposed to be skinny. And <laughs> I just kept getting further and further away from that. So that was just really hard to go through. And so when I was almost done the program, I went to a dietitian, and I was like, I lost, I need to lose at least 50 pounds because I've gained so much weight. Can you please help me? And so she offered me a totally different approach from what I was expecting. And she introduced me to intuitive eating. And so I worked through that with her and it just changed my life so much. And so that's where I actually started my Instagram from because I really wanted to share all of those good feelings with anyone who would listen. So yes, that is my little journey.
0: Wow. And you're in Canada, me too, yay. Um, But I talked to a registered dietitian who was down in the US and she was telling me a little bit about the program. So I'm curious to know, I mean, if you know of any of the differences between the two countries in terms of what a registered dietitian, kind of what their program looks like. But I think more... Like, what was your experience like being in that program in terms of uh, what you all learned? And as you said, the people around you were supposed to be, I'm putting in air quotes, supposed to be thin, those types of things (laughs) that were happening in your program for you.
1: Well, I'm not really sure what the differences are between the two countries' programs. The one thing I have noticed, though, is that most of the ones in the U.S. have a master's degree. So I'm not sure if that's a requirement or if that just makes them more employable because in Canada, having a bachelor's is perfect. And then just in terms of what we learned in school, it was really based on weight-centered approaches. So we learned all about calories and those kinds of things. We never touched on intuitive eating or anything like that. That was a lot of self-learning.
0: <laughs> wow. So it's very weight specific.
1: Mm-hmm. It really is. Yeah. Wow. And
0: I'm assuming it's the same as it is down there. Like a registered dietitian here can also go work in a hospital or a school or mm-hmm. like the kind of range of, yeah. Oh, that's very interesting. And what happened to the guy? Yeah. Just curious. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, ah, uh, the guy, he did not like me after 50 pound weight loss. Um, that was really rude <laughs> I thought that he would like me but wow. of course he wouldn't so it just kind of faded away because I thank realized that I goodness. should find someone better <laughs> yes
0: thank goodness wow what an experience eh really
1: true yeah <laughs>
0: Okay, well, I'm going to jump into the book now because it is such a dense book. Uh, Fearing the Black Body by Sabrina Strings has become a bit iconic. It gets talked about quite a bit in body liberation mm-hmm. circles. And so I, I guess my first question is more, what were your initial thoughts around this book once you read it? This, this was your first read-through. This was my second read-through. Yeah. What were kind of your initial thoughts around this book coming out the end of it, what, what kind of things were you thinking?
1: I was honestly just so floored by all the information that I had just gained because there were so many facts that I had no idea about that she presented. And it was just very well researched, yes. but it was still easy to read. So I really, really appreciated that.
0: Yeah, me too. Me too. I just finished reading, for another podcast episode, The Beauty Myth, which was written in really solid academic language that was not very readable. Um, it, it's a great, mm-hmm. it's a phenomenal book. It's a mind-blowing book, but it was very difficult to read. And so I really appreciated being able to read this book through, understand yes. what she was saying, and walk away with something concrete at the end of it. Um, so she she's titled it Fearing the Black Body.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Who who do you think is afraid of the Black body?
1: Oh, this is a tough question. When I read it, I was like, wow, that is really deep. And <laughs> my conclusion was everybody. Yes. Yeah. yeah, it's crazy to say that, but I really think that everyone who is not us has kind of been conditioned to be the direct opposite of us. So we're just automatically disadvantaged that way, where people are just afraid of us inherently.
0: Yeah, I, I I walked away with that same thought that it was everybody.
1: Yeah, she starts
0: off what in the 1600s 1600s talking about how like and I didn't really know how to word this, but it was like the the black body was appreciated in some ways and then by the time we get to the end of the book it's like in medical studies and stuff the black body wasn't even like it wasn't even being studied you know um so it was like this complete dichotomy between on the one hand you had people actually kind of maybe showing an appreciation and then on the other side of the spectrum it was like they're completely ignored um and that came down to fear from what she was talking about with her whole argument um, of how all this stuff intersected. So yeah, that's kind of what I walked away with too is that we were all supposed to be scared of the black body, which is like, that's just, I don't know. I'm shaking my head. I'm shaking my head out. I don't even know how to put it into words.
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's ridiculous. And it's really sad. (laughs) Yeah. Um.
0: I don't know. I asked the question about what surprised you when reading this book, uh, if there was anything that kind of specifically came up that was really shocking that you weren't, that you didn't know about before.
1: Oh, there were a few different things. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember that when I first read a, the bio theory about how white foreheads are projected and then white lips are <laughs> are retreating because white people are smart whereas black people have the opposite features because they were made to eat right that blew my mind i was yeah. like wow how did you come to that conclusion yes
0: <laughs>
1: yes yeah yes. that and threw me off there were
0: so many things that they talked about with this quote unquote racial science uh, mm-hmm. which was like I mean the fact that they have the word science in it says that the 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 population thought of this as an actual like these were authority figures mm-hmm. that were actually mm-hmm. talking about these kinds of things and they were they were said in complete seriousness about uh, racial hierarchies and, and like you said that that, that <laughs> there's some sort of indication you know that the shape of your head will actually indicate different things about you is just nowadays we're laughing, but at the time these were considered authority figures, which is just, Oh yeah. You just kind of shake your head and you all are like, for me, it made me wonder what kind of things, uh, you know, a hundred years from now, people are going to be looking at us shaking their heads going, how could people have believed that nonsense?
1: I know. I think, about that too it's kind of crazy because yeah for them it was totally serious but <laughs> yeah definitely is not yes the other thing that really surprised me was when she talked about how much of a role the Protestant church played I had no idea about how churches would link morality to skin color and to body size mm. that really surprised me because yeah it seemed like, being white was a sign that you were elite. It was a sign that you have self-discipline and that you're not sinful, you're not greedy. Whereas because black people are usually in larger bodies, we were said to be like gluttonous, horrible people that are just so greedy. And I thought that was really hurtful, honestly.
0: Yes, yes. And your point about the Protestant church is, is an interesting one because i i don't i'm not a religious person um mm-hmm. but i have encountered a couple people in my path a few of my podcast guests actually who are very active in the church and they tell me that fat phobia is extreme like it is something that they have very much encountered in their religious practice because some of these things that she talks about in terms of gluttony and temperance, are still there. They still linger in the culture we're in. Exactly, which is crazy. I, I think it's crazy to me how so much of this stuff nowadays, when we when we talk about different things, can be linked back to some of the the arguments that she's made in this book. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's just really interesting. Uh, one of the other things I thought was interesting was that medicine and society were at odds in the 1800s about what a woman's body should look like so medicine yeah. was saying that women should not be this thin they shouldn't be it's not healthy for them to be like this whereas popular culture with magazines and and even racial science was saying we need to be thin for the good of the country
1: <laughs> the country, that's crazy
0: and it's especially so crazy because when we look at it today it's like, it's almost like, it's almost like the way that that Sabrina Strings goes through all the different centuries and talks about all the different uh, kind of things that were happening in all these different areas with racial science, with this thin ideal um, and how everything kind of intersects It was almost like she was saying that medicine was behind, but medicine just kind of reacts to the society that it's in, which I think is very interesting because I think a lot of people today would hold up science and medicine as being the reasons why it's not okay to live in a fat body. So I thought that was really interesting. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So there was a lot in there that, That was sort of (laughs) Mm mind-blowing.
1: Definitely. I was shocked for most of the book. Mm. And it's honestly things that should be common knowledge. I feel like if people knew the history of all of this stuff, it wouldn't be that widespread. I agree with
0: you. I think I didn't know any of this. Uh, I Mm -hmm. read a book called Fat Shame by Amy Erdman Farrell and that was kind of the first time that i encountered some of these ideas it's more like a primer than this one is <laughs> this one's mm-hmm. so in depth so <laughs> but it made me realize these deep connections between racism and fat phobia that i didn't know before and and i think it's uh, it's probably a good time to talk about that what 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 do you think or what is the argument being made here or what has your personal experience been like connecting racism with fat phobia?
1: So one way that I've experienced fat phobia and racism is just from society in general. If we look at the last 20 years or or so, being thin was the only way of looking that was acceptable. It's only been in the last few years that people are now more into curves and into big butts and small waists and those kinds of things. And the only reason that was even normalized is because of the Kardashians, unfortunately, Mm, mm, mm. and they're not even Black people. So it took someone someone who's not Black to make Black features kind of more acceptable. And so it kind of, is really annoying that only recently have my features been seen as more appealing. Before, no one would ever compliment me on my shape, but it only seems now, as things are shifting a bit, people are like, oh, you have a nice shape. But then, even within that, (laughs) having a booty or having a big butt, the way people describe, actually has a hierarchy too, from what I've seen. It seems that the ones that are valued and seen as great are the kind that you build in the gym. And usually it's white fitness influencers who are doing this and they have Mm -hmm. the great, awesome, big butts. And then the ones that are on black women more naturally are seen as inferior because it's like a fat butt and no one wants a fat butt so the connections are really deep (laughs)
0: yeah i i think about this this uh, this like the the kardashians have been the ones to promote this and maybe get uh this into the more mainstream and that's just kind of infuriating Mm -hmm. on on multitude Mm -hmm. of levels i mean they're also the ones that are promoting uh detox teas um exactly corsets or not what do they call them now
1: waist trainers Waist trainers. <laughs>
0: thank you you know these types of really horrendous things to to shape our bodies mm-hmm. into something that you know it's okay to be fat as long as you're this shape you know <laughs> which is mm-hmm. like a terrible message and it's, it's not
1: even their natural shapes too no. that's the crazy part about yes. it those are it's not their body yes yes
0: <laughs> yes, yes. So what kind of things do you think Sabrina String says about like in the way I read it is she kind of starts talking specifically about race at the beginning and then she kind of talks about how it intersects with this whole thin ideal and then by the time we get to the end she's talking about it about medicine and they've completely kind of come together that's kind of how i viewed the argument was that you know you're kind of on the one hand you're looking at race as kind of a separate thing in the 1600s because she kind of goes through all the different decades de- no not decades centuries
1: <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um to to talk about these things and and i thought that was really interesting and i thought that it was really uh just the differences between what these Generations of people thought about race, mm-hmm. and then thought about living in a larger body. Um, I don't know what were your, did you kind of have any takeaways with the, the way she laid out this argument in terms of, uh, in terms of race and in terms of the thin ideal.
1: I just found it really interesting the way she laid out how being thin became the American way of being just in the sense that being thin meant that you had that self-control and that you were disciplined. It was even a sign of intelligence at some point. So just connecting those ideals with the fact that Black people were seen as inferior, it kind of shows that connection right there. Because if we are not those things naturally or we just can't get there, it's now saying that we are not intelligent, it's saying we're savages. Yes, and all of those kind of negative words are being <laughs> ascribed to us because we don't fit those ideals. Yes.
0: She also kind of talked about how, at one point in time, I think she said it was the 1700s, there was this whole idea that men uh, needed to be really thin because it spoke to them being. Uh, more intelligent because they're above their kind of earthly needs they're in the realm of their heads at the same time that that was happening it was okay for a woman to be very voluptuous and to have curves to some degree um, she doesn't really get into this but I I felt like even though she talks about in the 1600s it's okay for a woman to be voluptuous uh, I still like they threw around some numbers a little later in the book as to um proportions that they were talking about for the actual Venus. And it was like that's not really gonna be quote unquote fat. Like it, it it's really still not gonna be someone who would be considered fat at any level. Uh just not really thin. But anyway, I thought it was interesting that at one point it was the men who were supposed to be really thin and not the women. And I, and, and I thought it was interesting that, um, you know, even though we're talking about the voluptuousness of women, that um, that the voluptuousness of women is still not, they may be fleshy, but they're not fat.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I found that very interesting too. It almost made me wonder if there could be some sexism in there. Like maybe at that time, men's weight was so much of the focus that for once, they were not thinking about our weights as much, and maybe <laughs> they didn't need us to prove that we are more superior than each other because they were focused on themselves. Who knows? Right,
0: right. right. <laughs> well, I mean, still though, at the time they were objectifying women with how, like, how many different treaties about beauty can we have talked about in there? Right. I mean, every man That's and his true. dog seemed to have an opinion about what it meant to be beautiful. <laughs> Even in the 1600s,
1: <laughs> that is crazy.
0: <laughs> the objectification of women never, never really ended.
1: <laughs> no.
0: Um, I guess that's probably a good place to ask about about our current ideas. Uh, like how do some of the ideas from her book kind of filter into our current ideas about race, about fatness, about being a woman? <laughs> I mean, I think that objectification of women doesn't go away, right? Like, I think that that's definitely something that we're still dealing with today.
1: Exactly. Like, we are being objectified so much, but then at the same time, sometimes we perpetuate it. Like, when I think about how men come up with their own ideas out of nowhere about what is beautiful in whatever time it is, They start looking for women who fit that mold. They take pictures of them. They hype them up. And then other girls look at this and we're like, oh man, so this is what men want. And whether it's consciously or subconsciously, we start striving to kind of be more like that. And it's really sad, but it is natural to want to be loved. It's natural to want to be seen as desirable and attractive. So in that sense, I think that we still perpetuate that ideal, sadly. Mm. Yes,
0: yes. And what do you think about some of the things that you walked away with what this book was telling us about race? How does that kind of play into who we are today as a society, as a culture? Hey, there's a big question. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) This book doesn't lend itself to like, let's ask a really like, (laughs) You know, a tiny These question. These are deep questions. I know, they
1: really are. So good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Do you mean just in general, how has it affected society right now? Yeah, or? like,
0: I, I think for me, I walked away with, like, because especially um, the last few chapters, she doesn't talk as much about race. I mean, she does. Mm-hmm. She, she talks about immigrants and immigration and talks about how... Um, uh, how how immigrants were treated and why uh, Irish immigrants and Russian immigrants and Southern European immigrants were looked at as other. Um, and then she kind of comes mm-hmm. back around uh, at the end talking about medicine and how medicine didn't really talk about the black body so much because, you know, at one mm-hmm. point in time, racial science said they're just going to die off. Like that was kind of the thought was <laughs> yeah. that they yeah, I know you laugh, but that that really actually, that made me so angry. I was like, this is supposed to be a culture. We are supposed to be a caring culture. We are supposed to care about one another. Mm-hmm. We are supposed to look at one another as human. And it was just,
1: yeah. I would think so.
0: My heart just broke. Anyway, um, and and so she, then she comes around, back around to that. And she talks about how in medical science, uh, they didn't mm-hmm. even really do any studies. So it makes me wonder like, what are, what are we as a culture and a society? Like, what are we saying about race? And I mean, right now, I mean, with everything that's been going on, uh, with the protests Mm -hmm. and everything, maybe, maybe, maybe the situation has changed since, you know, two years ago or something, but I don't know. I don't, I, I just kind of, I'm curious if you walked away with any takeaways about, about race from this book that can be applied to society today.
1: I would say that when I was in school, all the textbooks would always talk about the incidences of different diseases. And at the end of everything, it would always say Black Americans are more prone to this. And I think hearing things like that kind of makes you see other races as inferior. So in the book, when she was Mm -hmm. talking about how they up with what is seen as fat and what's not seen as fat. Black bodies are usually in that fat category that is seen as the worst place to possibly be. So even if we're not directly saying black bodies are bad bodies, just from looking at the science and looking at what medicine is saying right now, it kind of makes you think certain things about a race. People can associate us with being more lazy, and just be, being unmotivated people, all because of that medical science. And I just thought that it was interesting that it started that way at least 100 years ago, and it's still going on today.
0: I mean, you, you think 1600s and 1700s, and she talks about the, the transatlantic slave trade as being a really big kind of uh, confounding factor in, in why we are kind of where we are in terms of what we think about bodies and about black bodies in particular Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: but so you think 1600 1700s you're like well that was so far removed it's like another it's like i'm an anthropologist studying another culture and then you pull Mm -hmm. some of that stuff into today and you go has any of this has it part of me but has any of this shit fucking changed like it's just so Mm -hmm. frustrating you know it's like it's so frustrating it is anyway it really is so before medicine got on board the thinness equals healthy train both morality and race science played a role in pushing the idea of thinness being better Mm -hmm. what are your thoughts on how these impacted culture and how do you think these two things play
1: out today well in terms of morality i feel like it's still there a bit today because even in my own church, people talk about how you shouldn't be gluttonous and there are certain diet patterns that we're encouraged to follow that are more on the vegetarian side and there's just so much information about how you should eat and whether we like it or not, that is obviously connected to being a better Christian or a better person. So. It's unfortunate because in that way, it's like we have to spend so much time not being fat because we want to be self-controlled. So that is definitely still a thing today.
0: Wow. I feel. Um, that is so interesting because she goes into the history of all that with the George Cheyenne, the doctor who decided to, to kind of go vegetarian and then. The history of the Seventh-day mm-hmm. Adventists and she goes into all that. So that must have been really kind of um relevant for you to read how all it that really came was. Through. <laughs> That's really interesting. I was
1: so shocked because I never, ever, ever would have connected those dots at all.
0: Wow. Wow. Um I what I thought was interesting, it, like she's talking about all these ideas and some different people that were kind of popular and perpetuating them but she really gets into magazines and newspapers which I thought was really interesting mm-hmm. so this is the way that kind of the masses I guess uh, began to began to get these messages that it was that, that being thinner is better that, that mm-hmm. um, you know we don't want immigration we don't want to um, race science stuff that they were talking about the, that was how mm-hmm. they got all their messages. I thought that was really interesting. What did? What do you think about the role of magazines in today's culture? Do you think they play kind of the same role that she was talking about?
1: I think they really do play the same exact role because yeah. if, if I look at a bunch of magazines, especially women's magazines, they're all going to have a beautiful woman with a beautiful body and it will be like, get this Um, feature. If you do this, I feel like they're all about weight loss. Like if you do this two week detox, then you'll have a flat tummy or you can just improve yourself in one way or another. So it basically seems like anything geared towards us is about our appearance. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's it, the world of magazines. I used to be a real like I would buy them all, all the time. And Me now too. <laughs> I don't. That was a hard habit to Cosmo. break though. <laughs> Cosmo was your yeah. magazine of choice, eh? Well,
1: yeah, that was, history of which that. one there, was too. yours?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was a bodybuilder. So I was into oh, um, wow. muscle fitness, hers, uh, oxygen. Mm-hmm. Those ones were my, I didn't miss a month. I bought them all the time. Oh. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. They become like your Bible. Like they become the way (laughs) they really do. Uh, It it was funny because in the book, she's talking about how these magazines would, would not only tell women how they had to behave and what they had to eat, Mm -hmm. but they were also Mm -hmm. ways to uh, promote social justice. Like they, the the temperance movement that was going through, uh, Protestantism, um, you know, mm-hmm. and so, and at, th- at that time, those things were thought of as really big kind of social justice movements. And mm-hmm. I think it's interesting because nowadays, sometimes you can see that in some of the magazines, they'll do a big article on, I don't know, even something like body positivity. And then they'll have a diet ad right after it. Like, it, it, yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, they mix messages, right? Oh, it's terrible. Um, it
1: is. It really is.
0: In what other ways do you see culture digesting these messages? Like what do you think the role is of social media when it comes to messages about the thin ideal, about racism, about um, all the other things that she talked about in here, I guess, morality?
1: Well, I think social media definitely plays a role in affirming that the thin white ideal is The best thing to be because if you take a look at the most popular influencer accounts it's going to be girls that fit that image and they're popular because of men just admiring them so much and then also girls wishing that they could be more like that person so i think it really plays a huge deal in that sense i know i've curated my social media to the point
0: where I'm not seeing some of the images that maybe someone, let's say like my sister, who's not involved in this movement, she's not going to see, she hasn't curated her social media at all. So she's seeing thin white women promoting a bunch of products that she doesn't need, like essentially, right?
1: (laughs) So because black people and people of color accounts just in general are not as, important and not as seen we don't really get represented much so there really isn't a chance to even compete with that ideal or to be equal with it because we're just not seen at all
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um i kind of wanted to talk a little bit about the bmi because she does talk about it in there and even more so than some of the other books that I've read about the BMI, where it talks about the history of it, she gets into the insurance companies and their role. So I had known that the insurance companies were kind of the first ones to put out these types of tables, but I didn't know kind of all, like she goes into quite a bit of depth about the BMI and, and where it comes from and the history of it. And what was your kind of your thoughts around all that? Or was that something that, that maybe they had already did they talk about that in your program at all? I'm guessing not from what you've already talked about, but maybe.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, we never ever talked about that. (laughs) That actually really shocked me (laughs) because I had no idea that that was the history of it. Wow. I thought that I knew a lot, but I didn't know that it comes all the way to that too. Wow.
0: Well, it's so, I mean, it's so such a bias. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Um, I mean, it really doesn't tell you anything. That's that's the problem with the BMI. It tells you nothing, right? But uh, in your program, did they promote the BMI as a really good way to interpret
1: whether or not someone was healthy? I feel like at first that was just a common measurement. But then towards the end, I do remember a few times we spoke about how it can't totally be accurate because it doesn't account for muscle mass. And it doesn't count for age or gender or any of those other things. So I learned that it is a shifty measurement while I was still in school, for sure. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, I guess that was one good thing. They didn't go into (laughs) that. (laughs) eh? (laughs)
1: Yes, (laughs) thankfully.
0: I wanna ask a question about that very, like, she does an epilogue about those two studies. She essentially puts those two studies side by side. One was done by a male who was fairly new to the field, and he had come up with 18% or something like that of, of deaths were related to ob- obesity. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: And the other one was done by a woman, uh, a woman who had was like the most cited woman in this type of research. Mm-hmm. And she had basically come up with... Um, that being in the, I hope I'm getting the details right. Being in the overweight category has just as much of a chance Mm -hmm. of there being any risk um, related to weight as being in the normal category. And she was essentially setting up these two studies as like a real, a close look at how, I don't know, how the media maybe plays a role in, mm-hmm. in what happens with studies like this, or maybe she was trying to tell us about how the reaction um, has really changed where people are are saying, you can't say that it's that it's okay to be overweight. Like, I don't know.
1: What were your impressions when you read that epilogue of what she was trying to tell us? Well, one thing just in terms of BMI is that they found in some studies that people that were in the overweight category actually had better health outcomes than people Mm. in the normal category Mm. so yeah that's what that was about and then also just with those two studies looking at them side by side it seems like the one that the male did got more respect maybe because He was a man who came up with those um, Mm -hmm. conclusions and because it also fit popular culture to say that fat equals bad. So we'll accept that even if it doesn't make sense. Even though that woman was the most cited and was actually knowledgeable about what she was talking about, she was saying something that was just so unpopular that people would not accept it at all.
0: She starts off the book in like, you know, I mean, I guess she has the little prologue where she talks in the 1800s about how doctors are like, women can't be this thin. It's not good for them. And then we end with, it's not good for people to be quote unquote, too fat, whatever that Mm -hmm. means. So yeah, very interesting. Well, let's finish off with you telling listeners a little bit about where they can find you and what you've got going on right now.
1: Okay, for sure. So the best place to find me is on Instagram at (laughs) The Thick Nutritionist. And you can also find my work on thethicknutritionist.com. I just sell some anti-diet merchandise. And also this year, I'm really looking to have more speaking engagements. So if anyone wants to talk, feel free to reach out to me. I would love to.
0: Well, I really enjoyed this conversation and I will make sure to put all of those links in the show notes so people just have to scroll down and click. So thank you so much for being here, Natasha. Thank you. Wow. Can you believe how incredible Natasha is and how just amazing that book is? I really, really encourage you to go and pick it up. It was so good. Before we head out though, just a reminder that you should go onto the I Wish I Were Me website and pick up your copy of the Your Better Body Image checklist. I also want to tell you about a review I received. I you know, one day I'm going to see that I have an an email in my inbox and know it's a review, and I'm gonna set up my camera while I read these because I I cannot tell you how excited they make me when I get a review. So if if you're really looking for a way to support what's going on here on this podcast and you've enjoyed listening, I would appreciate so much if you would leave me a rating and review. It just, <laughs> I literally kind of dance in my seat because they're just so much fun and I love getting the feedback. So I got this review and I wanted to read it to you. The review was from Chirley One from Apple Podcasts. The review says, Hi Jennifer, I just listened to the episode on Christy Harrison's new book and loved it. You have a very easy style and the episode was full of great sharing and information. Well, thank you so much for listening. Just thank you, thank you, thank you. And um, please, if you get an opportunity to rate and review, I would really appreciate it. Keep reading, everyone.